Our scripture lesson today comes from the very beginning of the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 2. Let's share in God's good word together. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Seven deadly sins. Now, I think myself, I think highly of myself, and I'll just say, if every time I was about to say a sin that the spooky music came on and you gave me a dark, cold graphic, I wouldn't sin. Right? I mean, if that's how it came to us, we'd be like, no, I'll pass. That's a hard pass on that. Like, no, I'm not doing that. But that's not how temptation comes. That's not how sins come to us, is it? No, of course not. You You wouldn't fall for that. The thing is, when temptation comes to you, it looks more like this. Right? Don't be fooled. That's going to grow up to be a cat. It's going to be a cat. It's going to poop in your house. Now, it's going to have a box, but still it's in your house. Don't fall for that. And just when you remember, you think, that's going to grow up to be a cat. And you think, no, I'm not going to fall for that. I'm not going to take that cat home. They do something like this. They flip over. You're like, how can I not do that? Now, I know some of you are wonderful cat people. I love you. I'm a dog guy. I'm just saying, right? Or you think of a tiger kitten, right? A tiger, they're going to eat you when they grow up, right? Like you should not bring that in. Now, if you're cat people, that's fine. But you understand what I'm saying? That's how temptation comes. And that's the problem with pride because we always think, oh, I can train my cat, right? It'll be fine. But then it's not fine. The thing is, it's about our pride. When we think we know what happens next, when we think we can control others, when we think we know the outcome, when we think we know better than God, just get ready for the pain. That's the way it works. Starts out cute. We think we can handle it. And the next thing you know, we can't handle it. One of the things I've learned uh, by being in management is that when anyone on my staff says to me, don't worry, Pastor Mark, I've got it. What they're really telling me is I don't got it. Right? Because what they're saying is I'm not self-aware enough to know that I don't know all the variables of this thing that I'm about to participate in, particularly with the youth group. Right? Or children. You don't know what's going to happen in the three-year-old class. Nobody knows what happens in the three-year-old class. I'll have to talk to you. I'm not even sure Jesus knows what's happened in the three-year-old class. I'm kidding. Of course Jesus knows. But you, you understand, when we think we've got it, when we're overconfident, we're ready for a fall. It's, we're about to take a beating. And so let's continue on and see how this, how this rolls out. This is true for all of humanity. Uh, it's true for you, in case you don't know that. I'm sorry, this will be a hard truth for you today. It's true for every person on the planet. Uh, and, and in the very beginning of the Bible, it talks about humanity, who we really are. So the Lord God says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air, and they brought it to the man to see what he would call it. 
or the animals. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now, imagine this. You are the only man on the planet. And God says to you, you now have dominion. You have free will. You have choice. And you get to say what happens on the earth. You're a steward of it now. It's yours. I created it. Now I'm handing it to you. And you get to name every animal whatever you want. And so then God says, well, what are you going to call that? And, and man said what? Come on. It's a dog. Right. It's a dog. It's a very cute dog. It looks a lot like my dog. Or, you know, then, then there's one of these. What's that called? Giraffe. Oh, you're very good at this game. And so, I mean, if I was Adam, I think I'd call it like long neck. I mean, it's a little more descriptive. Giraffe. Okay. Or I think he laughed when he did this when he was like, ha, 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 hippopotamus. Oh, that's awesome. So, I mean, th- now here's the thing. And then we wonder why Adam is proud. I mean, if you had that kind of power, you're naming everything that lives on the planet. You're in control. Of course you think you know what you're doing. And all of humanity, not just Adam, we live in this place between the two trees, between the knowledge of good and evil that we're not supposed to pretend that we know what God knows because we can't, we don't, and the tree of life, which the tradition of Christianity is that the tree of life after the garden, after the fall, was subsumed into the ground and then rose up on Calvary and became the cross of Jesus which is where we find life today. The life of God, the tree of life, is found at Calvary. So the story goes like this. Um, some, you may know it. Um, it's found in Genesis 3. Things were great, and then the wheels come off. So the scripture says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be, what's the word? Desired. Now here, this, this could save your life. You need to understand this. Desire only leads to more desire. That you must know. Desire only leads to more desire. The, the trick is we think that if desire leads to satiation of desire, it does not. And so just think about your own life and you'll see the truth in that. You'll just own the truth of that. Desire leads to more desire. That's the trap. And so her desire was to make one wise to know what God knew. So she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband on the scene all along, by the way. Those of us who've been married, we understand this. We go wherever our wife tells us, and we're just there. Right? That's what Adam's doing. He's there. He's not not at fault. He's complicit. He knows exactly what's going on. He's just silent. Right? And so he's at the dinner party with his wife. Right? He's right there. He eats. And the eyes of both were opened. Right? Not just her. Both of them, same time, they're open. And they, were, they then knew that they were what? Naked. Right. Now, in Hebrew, naked doesn't talk about sexuality. That's not what they're trying to portray there. It's about their vulnerability. Because if you're a tribal person and you have no protection, you have no armor, you have no clothes, that makes you super vulnerable. Right? So, so we don't need to uh, misunderstand the scripture about sexuality. This is about vulnerability, about understanding that they're mere mortals who are going to die, not gods. No longer all powerful, but now afraid. And so what do they do? They notice that they're naked, so they sewed fig leaves together to make loincloths for themselves. Now, if you are a Hebrew or you've been in the Middle East, you understand how hysterical this is. We're supposed to understand that a fig leaf looks like this. It's super scratchy. It's just big enough to cover your privates, but it is uncomfortable. Like, you don't even want to touch it with your hands. So that's the front of a fig leaf. That's the back of a fig leaf. Even more scratchy. That's the part that would be on your privates. Like, no sane person would do that. And so what we're supposed to know is because they were so afraid, they had really lost their mind, they were putting itchy stuff, like putting poison ivy on their privates. And the people who heard the story would be like, man, that's dumb, right? 
But that's what pride does. It leads you to do really, really silly things. And so just for you to have a mental figure that, you know, mental image you can't get out of your mind this afternoon, it looks like this. So that's me in Ephesus with a real fig leaf. It would be super uncomfortable. You do not want to do that. It's dumb. Now, that's what pride does. It gets you to do dumb stuff. So don't do that. So the story continues. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. God comes to check on him like he always does. But they hid this time because they were afraid. Right? The Lord God calls, where are you? And they say, we heard you coming. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. That's what happens. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman. The woman, that's blame, right? That's, that's our go-to move. Her fault. I, she did it. And so God says, well, what did you do, woman? And she goes, the snake. The snake. Not me, the snake. And isn't that true when you get found out, when you get caught? Did, I mean, do you go like, yes, it was me. I'm very sorry. Please forgive me. Is that your first move? Normally not. We're looking for some sort of other way, blame. So out of God's mercy, out of God's grace, so they they wouldn't live in eternal separateness, he drives them out of the garden. It It was actually a piece of mercy on God's part. And he places an angel and a sword flaming and turning to the guard to guard the way to the tree of life because the tree of life is eternity. And God wouldn't want them separated for all eternity. So then it's subsumed into the ground that comes back up at Calvary. So if you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. We're going to move through this. Uh, The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of us live between these two trees. And and it's not easy. Anybody that tells you the Christian life is easy doesn't know the Christian life. They don't know Jesus if they think it's just going to be easy. It was not easy for the Lord and it's not easy for us. You now have new power, but it doesn't make it easy. So we, like Adam and Eve, we all have a what? Say it with me. A choice between life and death. We really do. Every single one of us. And God will honor our choices. Now, the virtues of the cross that we're called to, they take effort, our best effort, and self-denial. And they lead to life. They really lead to life. It makes us stronger, healthier, better relationships, more joy, more peace, more patience. All those fruits of the Spirit come from living in the virtues of Jesus. Vices, on the other hand, are easy. They're really easy, but they lead to death. So any of you all ever get a new workout routine? And you're going to go work out at five in the morning. Your alarm goes off. Is it harder or easier to stay in bed? Right? It's way easier just to stay there. But if you stay there, you're going to get fat and die. Right? I mean, if you never get out of bed, you have no life at all. You actually have to have the effort and the, and the self-discipline to actually get up and get out the door if you want to have life. Um, this is particularly true with retired folks. Some of the happiest retired folks I know are folks that have a serious discipline of we force ourselves outside the house on these days a week. We do not allow ourselves to stay in the home when we're retired because otherwise we would simply lose our life. Does it make sense? It takes discipline. It takes control. It takes effort. And so Jesus says it like this. And the first part you probably know, you might have heard. Jesus says, in everything you do, do others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. What do we call that? The golden rule. But did you know what follows the golden rule? I mean, this is all one argument, friends. We don't get to just pick and choose what we like out of the Bible, right? You got to read it all. You got to read all of it. And so Jesus says the golden rule, and then he says, this is how you live it out, by the way. This is the truth of the golden rule. That enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is what? Hard 
that leads to life. That's what Jesus says. It's hard, but it leads to life, and there are few who find it. This is what Jesus says. This is how the golden rules lived out. It's hard to do, but it leads to life, and there are few who find it. We want to be a part of that few that find it. That's, that's my goal today, is that we will begin to live into that narrow way that leads to life. Now, if we're going to do that, we have to avoid the potholes. We have to avoid the traps. And the traps look like this, according to the church over time. Um, pride, anger, lust, envy. Pale, gas. Gluttony, avarice, sloth. Pale gas. You can remember that. From now to Easter, we're going to cover these because these are the traps of all of humanity. Now, you may know avarice as greed, um, but pale gugasus just doesn't have a ring to it. And so we're going to go with pale gas for now. So we're going to use avarice just so that you can uh, say the words. But that's, that's where we're headed. But it all starts with pride. We start with pride because pride is the passion from which all the others flow. None of the other six would even exist if we didn't think we knew best, if we didn't think we could handle it, if we didn't think this was going to be all right. It's, it's in that very moment where we choose our will over God's will, service to self rather than others. That's where all the rest fall in. And you can think about that, but that's, that's the truth of humanity. It all starts with pride. And so C.S. Lewis has some really important things to say about pride and humility. He says, as long as you are proud, you can't know God. You cannot know God if you're proud because you're putting your place in God's place. You can't even know God unless you submit to him. And then he says this, and this is important. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So um, I had a a young woman come up between services, and and she was very well-meaning, super cute. And uh, she had said to me that uh, in, her, uh, in her school, they, the, the teacher would ask, did you do this perfectly? Uh, and if you did, raise your hand. And she wanted to know if she could still raise her hand. Oh, isn't that sweet? I'm like, of course you can. Yes, that's the truth. He's calling it out. That's the truth of you. I said, but what you wouldn't want to do is raise your hand if he's not asking. Right? Hey, everybody, I played that perfectly. Did you? Nobody likes that guy. And it's also, the real temptation is this. After you've played it perfectly like 10 times, and then the next time on the 11th time, you didn't, and everybody else knows that you've raised your hand 10 times, aren't you tempted to raise your hand anyway and hope that they don't know you missed one note out of 32? Isn't that the temptation? That, That you hope nobody finds out? But then, if you do raise your hand the second time, now you have to live with the possibility of being found out. That somebody else in the room actually knows that you lied. Even if it was a tiny little one. And it separates your relationships with everybody else in the room because now that's about pride. You're not being truthful about you. It's fine to own who you really are. That's good. The truth sets us free. Those who live in the truth of Jesus are free indeed. So the problem is, though, that we don't see ourselves clearly. We just don't. So I want to ask you this question. I know we don't do a lot of this philosophizing, um, but, but just take a moment. How big are you in comparison to space and time? I mean, really. Um, any of you all space folks? I love looking at space. Uh, it's just beautiful, and I, it, it humbles me, and it puts me in awe, and I, I just love folks. Um, I love the, all, the, all the stuff in space. It just is, is amazing. Um, so anybody know who this, what this is? That's the Milky Way, right? It's one galaxy among many, many galaxies in the universe. Can you find yourself there? See, in Edmund, we think the world revolves around us. Or our children, right? Everything's about us, about our timetable. Many of you can even control the temperature of which you live all day if you want. You can turn the lights on at night and you can pull the shades in the day. You are in control, so you think. That's the lie in the West in particular. 
So if you want to find yourself, um, you're right here. That's the Earth in this photo, the third planet out, right? Or, my favorite, you're here. That's you. Can you find yourself? You see, if you look in terms of just space, we, friends, are a blink of an eye. A blink of an eye. Dust to dust. What we'll hear on Wednesday at Ash Wednesday, right? From dust we were created to dust we shall return. So that's just space. But let's talk about time for a second. Right? So if the world was a 24-hour clock, right? And you start going around. You start here at midnight and you cruise around. You don't even get to single-celled organisms until afternoon, right? And then you find algae. And then over here, you get some jellyfish a little before nine. And then people show up after the dinosaurs with 77 seconds left on the clock. All of humanity, friends. Every person who's ever lived on the planet. And so where are you on that timeline? Let's just say a blink of an eye might be an overestimation. Right? And we need to understand. And I'll speak for myself. This may not be true for you, but for me. I fully expect 100 years from now for no one to know my name, for no one to know my grave, for no one to know anything about me. I will simply have vanished like a mist off the face of the planet. It might be 20 years. I don't know. But I mean, certainly, I'm, I'm 51. By the time I would be, you know, 150, nobody's thinking of me. Nobody's reading about me. Nobody's visiting my grave. I'm gone. I, must, I suspect so will you. We, we are missed, friends. So we need not put ourselves in the middle and be prideful. We need to ask God, who is the God of all eternity, all of universe, all of time, to say, where's our place with you? We submit ourselves to you because you know things that we cannot as mortals. So here's, here's the trick. If we must be right, if we must be perfect, if we have to be in control, if we try to have other control, which is a fantasy, our pride demands deceit. Right? Because you can be good, maybe, maybe you can be good 97% of the time. You're only off 3% of the time. Well, what happens if you're trying to prop up that fantasy that you're good 100% of the time? You have to lie. And deceit then leads to shame and fear. It leads to the fear of being found out. And fear and shame simply lead to separation. And so your hope is, that nobody finds out. And so rather than being honest with someone about what you really think, what you really believe, who you really are, what you're really struggling with, and, and what your beautiful things are as well, you simply take a step back and they say, how are you? And you say, fine. And you make it to where you don't have to see them again because you don't want to talk about it. Everybody does that. Everybody does that. And as a pastor, I want you to know it's one of the most painful things in all my life. That I will bring somebody into the church, I will baptize them, I'll baptize their kids, I'll pray with them, I'll struggle with them, I'll go to the hospital when they're sick, uh, I might even be with them when one of their loved ones dies, um, you know, I'll show up to their home in the middle of the night because they need something, and, and I will just invest and pour my life into the people of our church. Every person, no matter what, where you fall on any spectrum, I will pour myself into you, that's my calling, I'm ordained to that, and I love you, I love every member of our church, every person that comes to our church, and I will be there for you as best as I can, and the staff will be too. But I also want you to know this. Sometimes those same people simply disappear. They just go away. And I call them. They don't call me back. I write them. They don't write me back. And there's nothing I can do about it. Not one thing. I don't get to be preacher stalker man. I just have to live with it. And what I know is something's happened in their life that they're not ready to talk about. And I won't see them again until they are. And there's nothing I can do about it. That's what pride and sin does. That's just the way it works. 
And, I, and if, if you know somebody like that who's, who's hiding these days because they're ashamed of something in their life, I hope you'll tell them that we will love them when they come. That they don't have to be afraid. They don't have to disappear. For whatever that is. Because pride makes us artificial and humility makes us real. When we say we can't but God can, this is the book on me, this is the real deal, it allows us to heal together as community, to surround each other with love and forgiveness and grace and to be made new. But we can't do that till we get real with each other. And here's the other thing that, that's, that really, really is tough on pride, and that is that we don't even have the power to live rightly without Jesus. Our ability to say yes to Jesus, our ability to say no to the things that would harm us or others, only comes from the Holy Spirit himself, from Jesus himself. And, and Paul writes about this. He says, he does this eloquently, actually, in Romans chapter 7. He says, this is the way of humanity on the planet without Jesus. He says, I don't understand my own actions, for I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Anybody been there? I mean, you put me with a bag of Cheetos at midnight, it's not going to go well. For I know that nothing good dwells within me. That is in my flesh, in my own power and ability. I can, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. Say it with me. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Isn't that true? Isn't that our life without Jesus? When we separate ourselves, when we hide, when we isolate, that's exactly what happens to us. And then, when we do decide to follow Jesus, the struggle is real. It's really, really real. And and just think about this. The powers of darkness, they don't really care if you're not following Jesus anyway. They just leave you alone. But many of you have come to faith, particularly later in life, when you finally say yes to baptism, when you finally say yes to following Jesus, it gets harder, not easier. When you're trying to fight an addiction, when you're trying to say no to alcohol or or some other addiction that you've got, it's fine as long as you're in it. It's the day you decide to quit that everything comes at you and you really need a drink. That's the day it happens. Isn't that true? Isn't that our experience? That the very thing that we're trying to overcome is the very thing when it gets even harder. And Paul writes this out. He says, that's exactly right. He says, I find it to be a law, the case, a natural law of God, not a man-written law, that when I want to do what is good, when I actually get to my place where I want to, evil lies close at hand. Any of you ever thought about starting a diet? Even the thought of starting a diet makes me hungry. Isn't it true? Because now you're thinking of food. It's counterintuitive. And, and now I want a ding-dong. Right? I'm sorry. The rest of you are going to get a ding-dong after church. So here's the thing about pride. Here's the thing about the passions. Left unchecked, they will wreck your life. Jealousy, desire, anger, they will violently dominate your life is the way the church has always taught. And it's true. This isn't a, a hard teaching to beat up on people. It's a truth so that you don't lose your life. St. Vincent de Paul in the 1500s said, Humility is nothing but truth, and pride is nothing but lying. We're simply not, we don't have the power of God. We have to invite God to come live within us, take us over, and surrender. So Jesus says this. This is is the answer. Jesus tells this story, this parable, um, that that is true. Um, We're supposed to learn from it. He says, those who trusted themselves that they were righteous and they regarded others, that's the problem. It's not about themselves anymore. They're trying to control others, right, with contempt. Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee. If we were doing a melodrama, every time you heard Pharisee, you would say, yay, because these were the religious people. These were the good people. These are the people that dressed up, went to church on Sunday in the snow. Just saying. And 
The other person was a tax collector. They were terrible. They were in cahoots with Rome, which had their boot on your neck, took your money and your women and your children, and they did terrible things, and they both go to pray. So the Pharisee, yay, standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And then he lists them, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, the worst of the worst. He says, I fast twice a week. By the way, Methodists, uh, we have a tradition of fasting twice a week, Wednesdays and Fridays. I give a tenth of all my income. That's also a Methodist thing, um, giving 10% of our income. But then Jesus says this, the tax collector, the bad guy, the one that we go boo to, he's standing far off, and he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but was beating his chest. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, that prayer gets you this close to a miracle. Because finally you're being honest about your place with God. That God can do something with. That God can turn around. That God can resurrect from the dead. But you got to get to that prayer first. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the one that prayed that prayer, even though he was a tax collector, he's going to go to his home justified rather than the other one. For all who exalt themselves, lift themselves up, they're going to be humbled. And all who humble themselves will be exalted. And if you follow politics at all, you know this is true. Right? People don't want to run because in a Google world, you will be found out. Whatever you did in junior high, high school, college, whatever, any bad thing you've ever done, the world will know it. That is the truth in the world. And so if you're a public figure like I am, it's just a matter of time before people know your business. It's just the way it is. Right? Have you ever Googled yourself? I do. A really good-looking guy that's not me comes up, so it's okay. Right? So Jesus says this. This is what we're supposed to know. All who exalt themselves will be humbled. That's just the truth of life. So don't, don't be the fool. Don't lift yourself up because somebody will take you down. But all who humble themselves will be exalted. God will raise you up at the right time. So the virtues of humility, patience, chastity, contentment, temperance, generosity, and diligence, these all train us in the way that leads to life. They all do. And it's difficult. And anybody that tells you that the Christian life is easy just doesn't know. They'll say, well, no, no, no. God's grace is free. Yes, it is. But it doesn't make it easy. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace takes our best effort. It is holy fuel for us to say yes to the things God wants us to say yes to. And it is hard. And for us to say no to the things that would harm us or others. And that can be very difficult. So grace isn't opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. It's opposed to earning. If, if no one should ever have the audacity to say, well, God, I came to church today in the snow, so you got to let me in. I'm good enough now. I did a hard thing for you. So you owe me, God. If you ever find yourself in the place where you think you owe me, God, you are in deep, deep weeds. That is a dangerous place to be. If you say to somebody else, you owe me, you're in a dangerous place. We're to serve others, to love others, to love God, to serve God. So pride is very simply, I know best. That's all it is. We don't have to make it overly ugly. It's simply, I know best. And we all fall into that from time to time. Humility is, God knows best. That's what humility looks like. And if God is in control, our humility demands truth. It makes us just be truthful about who we are. Now, here's the secret about heaven that most pastors don't talk about, but I want you to know. The scripture says that when we get to heaven, there's no hiding. There are no secrets. So everything about you will be known. So if you're a person on the wrong side, on the back end of injustice, and you've been beaten down, you've been wrongly accused... 
you are thrilled to go to heaven because everybody knows the truth about you. They know that you didn't do whatever you were accused of. They know your heart. They know. And, and so if you are the oppressed in this system, when you get to heaven, it is glorious because finally, finally, for once in your life and for all eternity, you will be known and fully known and you will be vindicated, says the Lord. The opposite is also true. That if you are the oppressor, if you treat your employees wrongly, if you lower their wages for vindication or just because you're in a bad mood, if you treat others and you got by with it your whole life, when you get to heaven, you can't hide that anymore. It's public for all to know. So we need to be careful how we live in this life. Because in heaven, heaven is simply what God wants done is done. And what are the things that Jesus did? He washed feet. Now, if you don't want to wash feet in heaven, then you're not fit for heaven. Jesus fed people. If you don't want to serve a meal in heaven, you're not fit for heaven. Jesus hung out with people that other people said were bad news. Prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, people of other races, people of higher and lower socioeconomic status. And if you, don't want, if you refuse to sit at the table with somebody who has more money or less money, more power or less money, then you're not fit for heaven. And we just need to get real about this. This is what God says heaven's going to be like. Where we serve and we love and we, we do. And this, is, this life is training for that life. So you have to decide, well, yeah, God welcomes me in heaven. The question is, do I want to go? Do I want to serve? Do I want to love? And if you have no practice in this life, what makes us think that we will automatically somehow think differently in the next? It's a very important thing for us to think about. Because truth leads to freedom and to life. And if we say yes to Jesus in this life, we can say yes to him easily in the next. And this brings us connection with God and self and others. Now, these are really big concepts, and so I want to try to, to bring it home in a way that hopefully will make sense to us. There once was a little boy named Andrew. I like to think of him as maybe four or five years of age. And he, and he was a happy kid. He had a dog. Makes him happy. That's a callback to the joke about the cats, in case you <laughs> miss it. All right? So he, he loves, he's playing, he's, he's having a good time, and he runs and he jumps and he plays outside in any room in the house except except the living room. There was only one rule in Andrew's house, and that was, thou shalt not play in the living room. Now, I grew up in that house, in a parsonage. There was one room I couldn't play in, and it was the living room. That was reserved, right? So Andrew was a contented child normally, but more than anything in the world now, you know where I'm going with this, he desperately desired to play in the living room. That's what he wanted to do, because that's the one place he was told he couldn't. And every time he passed by that room, he longed to play there. It looked awesome. More and more, he became obsessed with the idea of playing in that forbidden room. And one day, when his parents went next door to visit the neighbors, Andrew seized the opportunity. And he entered the living room. It was awesome. He ran. He jumped. He flew from chair to sofa and back again. And he was having so much fun, he could not understand why his mother would never allow him to play in the living room. Why, this was the funnest room in the house. But then it happened. His mom's antique vase that had been handed down in their family for generations fell. Crash. It lay broken, shattered on the floor. And Andrew stopped playing. He didn't know what to do. So he quickly slept, swept up the pieces and he, he, he got them under the skirt of his dad's favorite chair. Now soon, his parents returned. And they sensed something was off. There is a, you know, something the matter with little Andrew. But he said everything was fine. And it wasn't long before Andrew stopped playing in the hall and then stopped playing in the driveway and then he stopped playing in the den and then he didn't even play outside. 
he stopped running and he began to mope. And his shoulders would begin to slump. He didn't smile. Andrew was no longer a happy, contented young boy. And when his parents would ask him about his sullenness, he would really shrink back and say, everything's fine, and then go off by himself. And his eyes would no longer look into the living room with a burning desire, but with a sad and terrible fear, a reminder of what he had done. And there, under his father's favorite formal chair, were the hidden fragments of his mother's favorite face. Weeks went by. Months, actually. And Andrew's personality sank deeper and deeper under the weight of his worry and depression. One day, as he was moping up the hall, he saw his mother emerge from the terrible, terrible room. And their eyes met. And he knew that she knew. And he was terrified. Until... He saw her squat down with open arms, wide to him, wide to him. She wrapped her loving arms around him, and tears just began to pour down his little face. And he snuggled into his mother's embrace, and she said, why? Why did you not tell me? And he didn't have to say anything, of course. His mother saw the fear and the sorrow in his eyes, and it was only then that she understood why her little boy had been so distant. And it was then that Andrew first knew the wonders of what we call forgiving love. Forgiving love. Fully loved. Now, like Adam and Eve in the garden, who had one rule, don't play in the living room, don't eat of the tree. You and I, we break the commands of God. We do. We all do. We don't need to try to hide it. And we don't need to separate ourselves from God or one another under the sins of darkness. We live in fear of being found out And it affects our mood, our relationships with those around us, and our relationship with God. The sooner we own that, the better we can heal and begin to have life. So the good news is, friends, that there are really two trees. There are two Adams, and there are two Eves. And this is good news. The first Eve says, my way. The second Eve, which is Mary, says, thy way. In Luke 1, at the beginning of the turning of the very world itself, Mary says, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Your word, God, and the Messiah is born. The first Adam is passive at the tree of the knowledge of good and even the evil. The second Adam gave his life, Jesus, on the cross for you and me. And said, Father, into my hands I commend my spirit, trusting God. Paul writes about this to the early church in Corinth. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, Adam, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being, Jesus. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. This is the good news. That's why we gather, because there is hope for us because of the tree of life and the cross of Jesus. My friend Craig Finnesett, I think, puts it beautifully. It's very clear and very succinct. He says, you are better off losing your pride over someone you love then you are losing someone you love over your pride. So practice humility. Practice humility. So your action steps. I know you're like, what are they? Here, it's really simple. We're going to start small. Simply refuse to fish for a compliment. When you take out the trash, don't wander around the trash like, see? See what I did? Right? Don't say, oh, look how happy the dog is. I fed him. Right? 
very clearly, and this can be difficult, particularly if you've grown up learning how to do this, no self-promotion. None. That's God's job. Let him be your judge. Let him be your lifter up. Right? No self-promotion. It doesn't work anyway. It's much better to do a great job and have a coworker or an upline or somebody else notice than for you to say it. No self-promotion. Trust God with your life. Really. And then finally, maybe even more difficult, do something good for the world. Not just your family, not just for you, not just for your people, but for the world that requires effort, your best effort, your strong effort that requires God living in you. And tell no one. Tell no one. Simply do it. And let God lift you up to life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are enough that you are King, Lord, resurrection, and life itself. So we trust you with our lives. And we pray that you would take us, mold us, make us new, make us look like you. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you've taught us even how to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.